Welcome to the Economic Development Matters podcast. I'm Brianna Morris, and together with my co-host Sherry Baslama, we talk about matters related to economic development and why it matters. Sherry and I work together at Edmonton Global, where we focus on attracting investment into the Edmonton region and helping our local companies expand internationally. On this podcast, we discuss how we can compete globally and build a sustainable and prosperous economy to enhance the lives of the people in our communities. Our guest today is Ian McGregor. Ian founded Northwest Refining, which partnered with Canadian Natural Resources to build the Sturgeon Refinery in the Edmonton region. Ian also invented the carbon sequestration business in Western Canada, starting about 20 years ago, when it wasn't so popular. Projects in which Ian played a role as a founder and investor have now put about 40 million tons of CO2 safely underground. Ian is now the executive chairman of Hydrogen Naturally, and we're excited to hear from him about this initiative. Ian, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for letting me come out. It's great. So can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, I guess I'm an engineer, but I, I like welding better than engineering. So I started off as a welder and had a shop and built stuff. And, you know, big thing for me is building stuff. So as long as I'm building, I'm happy. And if I'm not building, I'm not happy. So I try and invent new things to build all the time. That's awesome. So what are you building right now? What's your current project? Well, I'm trying to build this hydrogen plant, you know, so I'm trying to I'm trying to convert low value wood fiber into hydrogen and sequester the CO2 that the tree captures. So a tree by living captures carbon out of the air and we preserve that attribute and sequester that carbon and we end up with hydrogen because the tree has energy in it. And so we end up with hydrogen that has a very, very low uh, negative carbon intensity. And then if we put that hydrogen in the front of the refining process or the front of the fertilizing making process, we can displace natural gas made hydrogen and make really reduce the carbon intensity of the, of the products that we produce. You said low value wood fiber, Ian, is that right? What is that? Yeah. Well, if you think about, you know, when we cut forests in, in, in Canada, we're primarily cutting them for the lumber that's in the forest. But the forest is a mix of deciduous and, and the coniferous trees that give us the lumber. So the, the deciduous trees can either go to the pulp market or they're just left in the forest sometimes or sometimes they're converted to pellets. And so it's, it's essentially the, the lumber is the high value part of the forest and the, the deciduous part is the low value. And it turns about, about just more than half of the forest ends up being that low value material. So traditionally, that has gone to the pulp markets, but Canada has become a. The pulp markets are just really tough for Canadians because there are places in the world where a pulp tree grows in ten years, and so you go to Indonesia or Brazil or some of those places, and it's a lot better growing environment for that kind of tree, and so they're essentially putting pressure on our margins here. We're a long way from the market where this stuff is used now, and paper's getting you know paper's in decline too. So all those things are conspiring to make Canadian pulp less competitive. And we got to have we got to have something to do with that stuff, or it just rots or burns or goes back into the air. So, right. So you're finding so, a new use for it. Yeah, it's just a new low value feedstock. But you know, you could think of it. I can I can sell my I can sell my low value fiber. I can sell my poplar tree into the paper market, or I can sell it into the carbon market. And it just turns out that the carbon market is a lot higher price than the paper market is. And, you know, we're doing something good for the world at the same time. We're taking carbon out of the atmosphere. 
So there's there's multiple facets to this then. So you're taking carbon out of the atmosphere, but you're also then using it to to produce hydrogen. Yeah, and so and we plan on building a. It's, so when we built the refinery at uh, at Northwest, uh, that had a gasifier in it, and it has the largest blue hydrogen plant in the world. And when we were dreaming it up, I'd always thought it was a good idea not to be emitting that CO two. And while I was doing it, everybody was telling me that was the dumbest idea they ever heard of. And CO2 was a flash in the pan and, you know, we shouldn't be doing it. And I just turned my hearing aid off and kept going. And we built the, <laughs> built the, we built, so we built it, you know, we essentially designed someone else actually paid for it, but we built the carbon trunk line up there and we built the refinery, which is the first refinery in the world that captures its CO2 emissions. And so today that seems like probably was an okay thing to do. And what I think is Canada is really well positioned. We got 9% of the world's forests. And when we cut them, half of them end up being left behind or burned or turning into something that ends up back in the atmosphere. And we don't have to let that happen. And we're not going to old growth forests. We're going to places that have been harvested traditionally. You know, there's, there's been a pulp mill at Hinton for 50 years, and it's going to be there probably for a while, quite a while longer, but we're not building new pulp mills because there's better places in the world to build them now. And so we have to think about, you know, what's over the horizon for Canada, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, so you're not foreseeing any problem then with getting feedstock for the process that you're working on? No, there's an enormous quantity of feedstock. You know, it's more, uh, what we're trying to do is conceive where we should put these types of operations. And first of all, I want to build things in Edmonton because I know, I think I know how to do that there. And the plan would be we're building, uh, we, we designed the plant to be uh, essentially four identical modules that would, when, when we're finished, it'll cost about $6 billion. And we'll build those continuously one after the other. And then we plan to do that in four or five places in North America. So, you know, once we get it going in the heartland, then we'll be trying to, to take that to other places. But what I think is we're starting a new industry for Edmonton. And eventually we'll be building these things just like a car factory, you know, one after the other, and they'll be going somewhere. So tell us more about um, yeah hydrogen naturally as a company. So when did you get started in making all these plans? Well, I have to tell you how I started the refinery. So I had a napkin in my office, and somebody was in there one day, and we we're having a beer, and I drew out the flow sheet for the refinery. So we're at about that stage of hydrogen naturally now. Uh, it's you know we've got about ten people working on it. They've been working at it for about a year. They're a bunch of, uh, they don't look like me. They're all, you know, they're looking more like you than they look like me. They're younger and smarter and faster. And uh, we got about 10 of them. And we, you know, we're, we're, we're figuring out how does the business work? We think we can do it very quickly once we once we get everything figured out because uh, we've essentially, it, you know, this is a wood refinery, but it, it's a refinery. Yeah. So this the way hydrogen is made and stuff, all very technical. I usually like to ask, can you explain to me the process that you're going through as if I was like, you know, yeah, a grade yeah. one student? Sure. So you start and there's oxygen in the air and you've got a choice to make. You, and so there's a little bit of oxygen and a lot of nitrogen in the air. And I could put air into the process or I could say no what I want coming out of the process at the end is pure CO2 because I don't want to pay to clean up CO2. So the first step in the process is I have what's called an air separation plant, and I separate the nitrogen out of the, from the oxygen at the first step. I take that oxygen, and then I put it in something called a gasifier, and so I put oxygen in, 
I put any source of carbon, it doesn't matter what it is, it could be oil, it could be wood, it could be anything that's got carbon in it. I put the two of them in there together and I put steam in. And then what happens is the reaction dynamics in that system are such that the hydrogen gets pulled off the water and the oxygen and the carbon go with the oxygen that used to be in the water and you get CO2, pure CO2 coming out and pure hydrogen coming out and nothing else. And then at that point, you can take that CO2 and sequester it underground and you can use the H2 as or hydrogen as an energy source. And most of the CO2 we make in the world is made from combustion. So I take 10 parts of air with nitrogen in it, and I mix that with carbon wherever it comes from. And now what comes out is uh, there's CO2 in what comes out, but it's got the 10 parts of nitrogen in the air in it. So it's really, really expensive to clean it up. And, you know, if you think of the whole stack of cleaning cleaning it up and putting it underground being $100 a ton, about 70 bucks a ton is spent cleaning it up and only 30 is spent getting it underground. So by making it in the right way at the first step, you just eliminate that 70 bucks and then lots of things are possible that wouldn't be. Right. So does that pass the test on the, on the little kid? Yeah. You know, I, I actually think <laughs> I followed that through. I, I understood the steps. I understood where, you know, that low quality wood fiber is the, that, combustible so yeah thanks for that yeah so the low quality wood fiber is half water and half carbon and a little bit really small a bit of other stuff so we've got that we've got five hundred thousand parts per million starting point rather than 400 parts per million gotcha thanks love it so why is the edmonton region a great place for this plant to to do this kind of technology You've got a functioning uh, carbon system because we built it, so we know how it works. So that's that's the first thing you can you can do something tomorrow with CO two if you've got pure CO two. So that's the first thing. Second thing is you know I worked up there for ten years building the refinery. I get along with all the people that run the shops. I can used to working with the building trades. They're all you know we're friends, and so when we build it again, we're not trying to figure out oh you know. It's always a little bit weird at the start, and by the end, it's not weird anymore. So I love working with them. We all get along well. You know, Boilermakers are some of my best friends in the world, and so it's a good place. We know we can build things efficiently there. Uh, I'll just get on a bit of a rant for a second. So what engineers always do is blame everybody else when the costs are high. So when we built the refinery, the costs were higher than when we started. The reason they were high is we never finished designing it before we give it to the people that are building it. So... We're designing all the time that they're trying to build. And then at the end, the labor costs more than we thought. Well, I wonder why that is. I wonder whose fault it was. It wasn't their fault because they did a bad job. It was our fault because we didn't finish the design of the thing before we started. And something like an oil refinery is so big that you can't really finish the engineering. You're just you're just in that situation because there's no other way. But on the on our hydrogen plant, we'll finish the design before we start engineering. We're trying to design it so it's like a car. It's made it like, I don't think modularization is done outside. When I drive from, you know, through the Duke, I look at all these things, people working outside when it's 40 below, and they're calling that modularization. That's something else. I think it's remote field construction. So we're going to design this thing so we can build it inside so people can be comfortable doing it. And we're going to do it in a way where where it's repetitive. So you can have a career building these things. You're not going to build one and never see one again. You're going to be building them for the next 20 years. So it can scale. Yep. 
but it's it's a multiple and it's identical units and we're going to design it to be built over and over again and no one's ever had the chance to do that before i mean that's the dream of all engineers is i get to do the same thing twice so i'm wondering if the other thing that might be attractive is like all the heavy industry that happens here because what we've been seeing is there have been investments being made because of the fact that we can do this carbon sequestration here. So there was that Heidelberg announcement just recently, a big cement plant that they're using carbon sequestration to, yeah. you know, um, minimize their emissions. And yeah, so- it's an Alberta asset. Not, I mean, you know, when I started, I mean, I'm old now. I was pretty old then when I started doing that. And I thought these are things we're trying to change the future of the place. We're trying to do something that is a long-term asset that brings people here because there's no other place like that in the world where I got all this stuff. So yeah, and we're going to come here. I love that, um, you know, in my introduction, I talked about that you've been doing this for more than 20 years. And I think like carbon capture is, it ha- it's in its heyday now. People are all very excited about it. But these the work um, has been happening here for decades. Yeah, I wonder who had that idea. That was a good idea. so what do you foresee you know as as the challenges uh that you still need to overcome to make this vision reality so one one of the challenges we have right now is there's you know the federal government has has ideas about giving various levels of investment tax credit support for doing various things so there's there's a certain level you get for carbon sequestration there's a proposed level you get for hydrogen and and there's a proposed level that you get for air capture and so right now the way that things are written we don't qualify for those and i don't think that was intentional i think it was just through oversight but what we think is the trees taking the co2 out of the air we're using that as as the feedstock for our process. Why should we not be treated as favorably as air capture is? So we're trying to you know we're trying to advance that cause with them, and those are those are are a big help to get to building something. So if we can get qualified for that, there's no doubt we can do it. As we as we migrate down the spectrum to less and less support, it gets harder and harder to do. Now, I don't mind things that are hard to do, so I'll keep trying no matter what happens. Yeah, clearly you don't. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that you're sort of in the like napkin drawing um, stage of the pro of the of the project. Do you have sort of a timeline in mind, and when you might like to see this or hope to see this come online? Yeah, I want to be putting a million tons in the ground by 27, and I want to add a million tons to that every year for the next four years. Anyway, that's great. And we're we're past the napkin drawing stage because we, you know. Last time we were doing this, we weren't. We had built a refinery, so we're a bit smarter now than we were when we started on the last one. Yeah, I think you're being a little humble there. And you see napkin stage, and then you say ten people on the project. That's uh, <laughs> that seems a little more than napkin stage. And and uh, I've had the pleasure of of uh, corresponding a little bit with uh, with some of those people. And it seems like you have a great team. Yeah, they're really smart guys, and they're all in their forties. And we work together a lot, you know. And uh, and we all like build stuff. We want to we want to change the we want to change the world. We're you know we're not trying to do small things. We're trying to do things that are really important that are going to make a difference. I love that. Um, You've talked a lot in this conversation about building things, and I just can't help myself. I I need to ask about the museum, Ian. Well, yeah, that's where I had my stuff from my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about it? Sure. So, you know, I mean, I, I, I enjoy understanding the process of how you make things. And I think it's important in a world that is trending to be more and more digital that you have examples of 
of things that were made and people took great care in the making of them. And they, you know, they weren't just made to do something. They were made to look a certain way. And so those objects resonate with me and I try and uh, be the custodian of them as, you know, as much as I can. For our listeners, Ian has, is it an, if I remember correctly, it's an underground museum where you store a lot of these different tools and machines from his, from throughout history. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm so I'm big on the Industrial Revolution and I'm big on the uh, African metalwork. So both those things to me are, you know, they're, they're topics that I'm really interested in. And I built it in a beautiful place and I decided there was no way I could make the place better, look better by building another building. So I said, well, I'll just put it all underground so you can't see it. So just like the <laughs> CO2. <laughs> <laughs> and then I tried to make it look, you know, I tried to make it look like it would have looked the Industrial Revolution stuff. I tried to make it look like it would have looked, you know, in 1830 or 1860. Yeah. That's very cool. I think Sharon and I would love to bring our kids someday. Absolutely. Yeah, I get a lot of kids through there and I do a lot with SAID. So the SAID, you know, it's part of the SAID program here. Every now, It's a long ways from Nate, but every now and then some of them come down. And for me, it's really important that the kids meet somebody who has fun making stuff. And a lot of times, you know, like you can't really make stuff on a computer. You can, you know, you can, you can't touch it. You can't feel it. You can't. Doesn't do anything. And so, this is a way to sort of experience that and to, to hear people that you know talk about it that think it's important. We have we have two of the best blacksmiths in the world that work out there, and so they're able to make anything that you can make out of metal or wood for sure. Probably pretty well anything. So they're there, and so they're always doing something when they you know when kids are there, they're always seeing somebody in real time who's had a career actually doing things, not, you know, not writing on a piece of paper. That's great. Well, the talent is a huge asset in, in Alberta. Absolutely. The engineering talent. I think uh, Edmonton, Edmonton region has one of the highest per capita rate of engineers in the world. Is that right? Chair? Yeah. Alberta as a whole does. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And that's a resource that, you know, we can exploit for the future. So we can make it a better place by, by harnessing that. Yeah. Yeah, we just, we make things here. That's yeah. what we do, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Awesome. Anything else you'd like to mention to our listeners, Ian? Uh, don't give up on the place. You know, we're just on the start. We can convert all this stuff better than anybody else can. We've done it before. We're full of entrepreneurs. Just tell us what the problem is and we'll start working on it and we'll do amazing things. And so, you know, there's all this stuff going around about, you know, don't go into the energy industry or don't do this. It's just nonsense. I mean, we always need energy. We're going to need it forever. We use them, you know, every day we use it a lot in our life. And there's so much, it, you know, the whole, this whole transition thing is so replete with opportunities that it, you know, drives me crazy when people are thinking that there's nothing to do. It's a great message, especially for our youth, because I think sometimes they don't see themselves anymore in that industry, but you're right. There's so much innovation happening that it's a place where you really can make a difference. Yeah, you can change the world and you can have a lot of fun doing it and sometimes you can make some money. Yeah, well, that's that you you need to be in that sector to to make the change. Absolutely. Like, you don't avoid it. <laughs> that's not how you get the change you want in terms of in terms of an energy transition. Thanks so much for being here, Ian. Okay, well, this is a lot of fun. Thanks a lot. Yeah, is there a website uh, where listeners can go to learn more about hydrogen naturally? Yeah, hydrogen naturally. I think it's h2n.com, but there, there is one for sure, and I should know that, and I'll be smarter next no, time. No, that's we'll double check, and we'll put it in our show notes. So there's a direct link. Uh, yeah, wonderful. Thanks again for your time. Oh, well, thanks for being interested. We appreciate it. That's a wrap for today. Thank you for tuning in to the Economic Development Matters podcast, brought to you by Edmonton Global. 
For more information about Edmonton Global or to get in touch, visit our website, edmontonglobal.ca. Follow us on social media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. And don't forget to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be among the first to know when a new episode drops. Thanks for listening. We hope you learned something new about why economic development matters.